This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of Rex Factor is sponsored by Wine 52. Do you fancy a free case of wine from Argentina, Ali? I would. And I'd tell you who else would like some. Who Who is that one who drowned his brother in a vat of wine? Edward IV. Edward IV. That's the chap. Yeah, one for you, one for me, and one for Edward IV. How about the listeners? Well, there's good news on that front because our good friends at Wine52 are offering them a case of exceptional wines from the historic region of Mendoza for free. All they need to do is go to www.wine52.com forward slash rex and cover the postage cost of £9.95 and they'll get three bottles delivered right to their door. I like it, Graham. I like it a lot. Tell me about these Wine52 fellows. They are all about showcasing the very best wine from a different region each and every month. This month's Argentinian selection included Gallen Vignans El Martillo, which is a beautiful dark Garnet red with aromas of blackcurrant and cassis. Full-bodied and elegant, this perfect wine offers hints of cocoa and deep toasty notes in the finish. Well, that all sounds very, very nice, but this is a history podcast, Graham, and I want to know about the history of this wine I'm going to be drinking with Edward IV. Fear not, they've got you covered there as well. With the wine comes the Glug magazine, which will take you through the wines, vineyards and Mendoza's remarkable winemaking history. You have the choice of a mixed red-only or white-only case and two tasty snacks are included too. Well, sign me up. How how do I sign up? Just go to www.wine52.com forward slash rex and cover the postage cost of £9.95 and you'll get three bottles delivered right to your door. After your free case, you'll join the monthly wine club. No minimum commitment. If it's not for you, pause or cancel at any time. So that's www.thewordwine, then the numbers 52.com forward slash rex to claim your free case of delicious wine today. Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Philip II of Spain! With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello. And welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the Queen and Prince consorts of England from Elswith to Prince Philip. Uh, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rex Factor Pod. Like us on Facebook. Email Rex Factor Podcast at Hotmail.com and sign up for bonus content at Patreon.com forward slash Rex Factor. Now, today it's the start of a new mini series. Technically, this forthcoming mini series is on the Stuarts, but we're, but we're actually still with the Tudors today because we are doing our first chap, Philip II. But he's not. A, he's neither a Tudor nor a Stuart, is he? No, but he is married to a Tudor. He is married to Mary the First, daughter of Henry the Eighth, thus Mary Tudor. Uh, but yes, he is of course also King of Spain and indeed a global empire in his own right. One of the most powerful figures of the 16th century. So, as such, to make this episode manageable, we are predominantly going to focus just on his time as English consort. So we'll still do the usual early stuff, we'll still, you know, end the story with a bit of late year stuff, but it's much more condensed than we could do for someone of Philip's stature. Yeah. Imagine, uh, I was going to say, imagine Henry VIII got married. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> I, I can't imagine that situation. <laughs> Today, we are really narrowing down on consort to Mary I. Roger. So, with that in mind, let's get started on our first male consort. 
biography. Philip II was born on the 21st of May 1527 at the Palacio de Pimentel in Valladolid in Castile. Uh, in Spain, uh, son of Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor and King of Spain, uh, and Isabella of Portugal. Charles is uh, Catherine of Aragon's nephew and the most powerful monarch in Europe, as well as continuing uh, the Spanish conquest of the Americas. So he thus rules the first empire in modern times, for which it could be said, on which the sun never sets. Oh, yes. Mm. Okay. Uh, Charles is constantly on the move because of his vast dominion, so Philip lives with his mother until her death when he was 12 years old. Um, His father couldn't bring himself to accompany her body to the royal chapel uh, at Granada, so Philip has to lead the procession. So that's his first public role. Mm. So it's like uh, almost exactly Harry's age at Diana's funeral. Yeah. Yeah. And he's leading it. And he's there leading it, yeah, because he is representing his father. He is the prince. Um, he does so with the composure that would be his mark throughout his life. So apparently early on in Toledo, he did have to rush into a church to cry. Oh, God, he is going to be one messed up cookie, isn't he? Now, Charles is of poor health himself. So he's got this long term plan to hand over his territories uh, to Philip as soon as possible. So he's going to abdicate power rather than just waiting to die. Uh, Philip shadows his father in council, has a rigorous education, is credited with having an encyclopedic knowledge far beyond the norm for rulers of this time, albeit never particularly bothered with languages. <laughs> the languages thing is basically because they were all so many countries with so many different languages. They say, look, you can't learn all of them. Just do Latin. That'll be fine. That'll be fine. Oh, for his empire. Mm. Okay. Well, <laughs> so guilty of seeing... Yeah, carry on. <laughs> now, perhaps not surprisingly, with this very rigorous education from the young age, Philip's quite a grave self-possessed, very cautious sort of character, kind of old beyond his years. Mm. Uh, And Charles appoints him regent of Spain when he's only 16 in 1543. What's Charles doing? I mean, he's got other stuff to be. He's got the Netherlands, he's the Holy Roman Emperor. Wow. It's a big gig, though, isn't it? It's a big gig at 16, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, I was was still trying to get a job as a shelf snacker. Mm. Well, good for him. This is also the year that Philip would marry. Not to Mary, but Maria, or Maria Manuel, a princess of Portugal, his cousin twice over. What does that mean? Daughter of his maternal aunt and his paternal aunt. I mean, this doesn't sound good. I can't work that out, but it definitely is not, it's not going the right way. The Habsburgs it? are notorious for their inbreeding. So Philip and his father both have that sort of Habsburg jaw or chin as it's known which increasingly juts out with each generation <laughs> I mean is that useful for something is it is, <laughs> is that they uh, but this is they they can open the rarest of royal walnuts with their <laughs> own chins she falls pregnant but sadly dies just a few days after the birth uh, of a son in July 1545 Philip's heartbroken and he spends a month in mourning and misses the baptism of his son Carlos Oh, poor child, that's terrible, isn't it? Now, in 1553, negotiations are underway for Philip to marry another Portuguese princess, but events take an unexpected turn in England with the accession of the country's first queen regnant, the 37-year-old daughter of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon, Mary I. Mm. She had once been betrothed to Philip's father, and the accession of a Catholic queen represents a great opportunity for Spain because an Anglo-Spanish marriage will secure a sea route between Spain and the Netherlands uh, and thus protect them from French attacks. It also can act as a counterweight to Mary, Queen of Scots, who's recently married the French Dauphin, and so Scotland is obviously now in thrall to France. So if Spain could get England, that sort of helps to balance things out in Europe. Mm. Um, And it also helped to ensure Philip succeeds to rule the Netherlands because there's a bit of rivalry from the Austrian branch of the Habsburg family that are seeking to get a bit of control there. Um, And it's also a chance to bring England back into the Catholic fold, of course, after Henry VIII and then Edward VI, who really goes for the Protestant uh, reforms. Now, with her Spanish roots, Mary is keen to resume her prior betrothal to Charles uh, V, but he said that he is too old now and suggests Philip instead. Mm. Initially, Mary tries to be coy, declaring it a greater match than she deserved. 
but she soon accepts, though faced extensive opposition. Many of her ministers feared England would be subsumed into Spain and preferred the Englishman Edward Courtney, who was a great-grandson of Edward IV, while Thomas Wyatt, son of the famous poet Thomas Wyatt, led a rebellion that marches on London in opposition in order- to the Spanish match. Oh. Hmm. Mary, however, was not to be dissuaded. The rebellion was defeated, uh, and her councillors uh, ultimately have to agree, and they negotiate with Spain uh, the terms of the marriage between Mary and Philip. So they insist that while Philip would have the style and title King of England, he would have no powers of patronage or any claim to the English throne beyond Mary's life. And it's even explicitly stated England will not join the current war between Spain and France. It's like... um getting NATO membership whilst you're already involved in a war. Yeah. That's really interesting, isn't it? And so crucial in this relationship mm. that he is... And it's the first... Obviously, this is our first chap, so this is the first time this has happened. And it's actually far more tricky than the idea of a queen having power. Mm. You know, we've got over that hurdle. Now, if the queen's in power, that means there's a, a fella, and fella's actually... um. We listen to them. Well, <laughs> so and, and it's two prongs. So it's not just the fact that Philip is a chap, but it's that he's a chap who is going to be... Spanish. Well, not just that he is Spanish, but he's going to be king of the Spanish and ruler of the Netherlands and all these other things. So if he was mm. just one of Mary's nobles, I mean, she realises that will also create lots of division in the country because you get mm. factions. But at least, you know, he is, that person would not be a rival to her in dynastic power. But when you're marrying somebody who is the king of a much bigger country as well, that sort of creates an extra dynamic. It's not just the gender, it's actually that power. Um, But so that's a very one-sided marriage treaty. It's all very much, Mm. he will not have this power, he will be limited here. Mary is queen sovereign, Philip does not challenge, etc. It's all very... So why do it? So what's in it for him? This is the issue. So Charles is so keen on all the marriage that he just agrees to everything. But of course, Charles isn't the one getting married. And he's not the one that has to put up with all this. It's Philip. Mm. And Philip doesn't get a say in the matter. Now, when Charles first suggests the marriage to Philip, yeah. uh, Philip delays his reply for a month and was not exactly overflowing with enthusiasm. All I have to say about the English affair is that I am rejoiced to hear that my aunt has come to the throne, as well as out of natural feeling as because of the advantages mentioned by Your Majesty where France and the Low Countries are concerned. As Your Majesty feels, as you say about the match for me, you know that I am so obedient a son that I have no will other than yours, especially in a matter of such high import. Oh, well, get the scented candles out, my word. Now, that's just his response to the idea of marrying Mary at all. He's furious when he sees what the terms of the marriage agreement are. Oh, yeah. Because not... I hadn't considered that it's actually, he's a pawn in this. Yeah. So Mary yeah. gets to sort of put her case forward. Charles is just agreeing everything because he wants the alliance. Yeah, Philip is, again, this is the scenario we're in. He is the male consort. He is just the, the marriage pawn being sent off to yeah. secure an alliance. Uh, But Philip is not happy about all of this, so in January 1554, he executed a deed before a notary stating the agreement had been made without his knowledge, um, and so he would not be bound by it. That he'd whip out when his dad died? Yeah, I mean, in reality, it doesn't have any actual legal significance. It's effectively just a sulk that makes him feel a bit better. Yeah, but it's satisfying to have evidence for your sulk sometimes, isn't it? (laughs) But it continues throughout the uh, so-called courtship that is then meant to take place between the uh, the betrothed. So Philip neglects to send Mary letters or gifts ahead of the wedding. Yeah, I mean, neglects is is, is treating it fairly, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Purposefully didn't. Yes. Probably. Uh, Charles is worried that Philip might cause a scene if this attitude continues, and one of Philip's friends urged him ahead of going to England, for the love of God, try to look pleased. Yeah, we all know you're, you're grumpy about it, but now pull your socks up and be Spain. So Philip arrives in Southampton on the 20th of July, 1554. He's greeted with the news that Mary is inducting him into the Order of the Garter, while his father gives the news that he has abdicated to him the Kingdom of Naples. So that means that Philip will at least be sort of on equal terms with Mary when they get married. He will be a king, she will be a queen, regnant. Oh, for all of the airs and graces, Mm. he has that 
that technical bit box tick. Yes, he's technically a king when he marries Mary. Mm. Uh, so it's then on to Winchester in the pouring rain, because it's England, mm. uh, where he has his first meeting with Mary. They speak for about an hour together before a grand reception that night to all the great and good of court. Uh, Mary understands Spanish but can't speak it very well, so they probably converse in Latin. Yeah, lingua franca. When he made his departure that night, apparently Mary had taught him to say, Good night, my lords all, which was apparently the only words of English that he ever spoke. Really? Yeah. He is not into this, is he? Ironically, he's got a very English attitude. It's like, well, they should all be able to understand this language, so I don't see why I need to bother to learn that one. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's because he's full of empire, isn't he? That's where all of ours come from. Full of empire. Philip and Mary are married on the 25th of July at Winchester Cathedral. Philip dressed in the English fashion while Mary wore a traditional plain gold ring. Though it's not a completely traditional affair, Philip is stood on the left and Mary on the right. Oh, right, I see. Okay, yeah. The other way round to how it would usually be. Philip is not granted a coronation, though there is something akin to the coronation procession into London where we have magnificent uh, pageantry. Um, and this emphasises Mary and Philip's shared Lancastrian heritage because they are both descendants of, obviously, John of Gaunt. Yeah, he manages to get involved in Spain, does he? Indeed. Uh, well, yeah, and he, he tried to become King of Portugal, actually, John of Gaunt. So <laughs> <laughs> We should do an episode on But yeah. what that means is they're, they're trying to sort of put Philip forward as an English figure. So they're emphasising his English oh. royal heritage rather than the fact that he's Spanish. Blimey, that's a hard sell, isn't it? <laughs> when the only thing he says is, good night. He's not German, sorry. <laughs> sorry, it just comes out. <laughs> anyway, Philip is now king of England, albeit he is a king consort, uh, and he is also Mary, the first husband. So what do they make of each other? Now, he referred to her as his aunt. Uh, that isn't correct. That, oh. That's not what she was. Their first cousins once removed. Oh, gosh, I feel quite peculiar. <laughs> Welcome to the Habsburgs. <laughs> Would you like a walnut? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, first cousins once removed. Philip is 11 years younger than Mary, so he's 26. She's 37. According to contemporaries, uh, Philip's quite a handsome man, so a Scotsman at court for the wedding, John Elder recorded. Of visage, he is well favoured, with a broad forehead and grey eyes, straight-nosed and manly countenance. His face is princely, and gait so straight and upright as he loseth no inch of his height. With a yellow head and a yellow beard, he is so well proportioned as nature cannot work a more perfect pattern. Well, I mean, he sounds like hot stuff. Mm. The Spanish, however, are rather scathing about Mary. One complained oh, yeah. that the Queen is no beauty. She dresses very badly. While uh, Rigo Gomez de Silva wrote to a friend, To speak frankly with you, it would take God himself to drink this cup. And the best one can say is that the King realises fully that the marriage was made for no fleshly consideration, but in order to cure the disorders of this country and to preserve the Low Countries. Coming over here, saying all rude things about our queen. What's this? Maybe she doesn't even like blondes anyway. Yes, now, this is not entirely fair. Mary and her English ladies, uh, maybe not to Spanish taste, they're sort of kind of French fashions are probably more in vogue at the English court at this time. She's not ugly, and contemporary praise of Philip doesn't seem to be matched by his portraits, at least from modern eye. Mm. Looking for handsomeness. Uh, Another Spanish courtier said that Mary was very nice, although older than they told us while the Venetian ambassador concluded, if not for a slight decline due to age, one might say she was somewhat pretty. Anyway, but they seem to have got on reasonably well uh, together. Both are offspring of kings, close to their mothers, well-educated, devoted to Catholic faith. Uh, The same Rui Gomez observed that he treats the Queen very kindly. He makes her so happy that the other day when they were alone, she almost talked love talk to him, and he replied in the same vein. Uh, did they have a uh, fully normal marriage life? Uh, well, whatever Philip actually thinks about Mary, uh, and she is completely smitten with him, uh, Philip at least gives the impression of being enamoured. So apparently Philip's valet reported Mary was so exhausted after their wedding night that she did not appear in public again for four days. <laughs> Blimey. <laughs> <laughs> 
Crikey. <laughs> I don't know where to start. I wasn't expecting that from Philip II. No. Or Mary. <laughs> um, uh, right, Tony, so that answers that question. Jolly good. Yes. Now, although the marriage treaty limits Philip's official role, Mary wants him to play an active role in government. Um, unlike Mary, he's been schooled to rule from a young age, and he does have a great aptitude for administration. His greatest achievement in England is negotiating England's return to the Church of Rome. Does that fully happen, then? That fully happens. Fully accepted back into papal authority. Uh, all forgiven? Or? All is forgiven in an official ceremony. Um, and this is accompanied with the news that Mary is pregnant. Oh my gosh! For team, uh, for team Catholic, this is like uh, Brexit. Oh no, it's the opposite, isn't it? It's um, uh, yeah, being coming um, remain, <laughs> it being reversed. So with all of this, Philip's uh, popularity is now at something of a high. There's a lot of suspicion about him at the start, but actually everything's really going rather well. In April 1555, Mary withdraws to Hampton Court for her lying in. Ceremony. So this is where she will withdraw from public life to prepare to give birth. Uh, Philip essentially is left in charge of the country. Um, technically cut off, but Mary does come to her window at one point to watch Philip leading the garter celebrations at Hampton Court, and she turns side on uh, to show her belly to the cheering crowds. Oh, nice. Uh, Philip's improved status is shown by a change of plans for a regency should Mary die in childbirth. And he, what, he... But the Charles yes. So instead of a generic council of nobles, which was the original plan, it's now determined that Philip would be guardian of the realm with charge of the rule, order and government of the country. I mean, that is... That would him be... That would be him being just King of England. We would be part of the Spanish Empire at that point, right? And after that time, we could, it would definitely... If you had to draw a medieval map, it would be coloured... Red and yellow. Yeah. <laughs> well, blow me over. On the 30th of April came the news that Mary had given birth to a son and uh, there are widespread celebrations. Unfortunately, celebrations are premature. And indeed, uh -oh. as the months pass and then Mary's stomach reduces in size, oh, no. it was clear that in fact there was no baby at all and she had experienced a phantom pregnancy. Oh. So that's where... Oh, there was no... Like birth of a no, so it's not a a um a stillbirth or anything like or a miscarriage. She just wasn't pregnant in the first place, but she had a lot of physical symptoms like the belly swelling, her breasts would have swelled with milk and that sort of thing. But she's that wasn't, a real thing. Yeah, but she wasn't actually pregnant. Like sort of like a um plant going into flower or something, but without if but not having been visited by a bee. Mm. I mean, I sort of see that I'm literally. Uh, trying to translate this from my brain by talking about literally turn it now. back into the birds. Yeah, but if we could just keep it to literally birds and bees, <laughs> that would. Oh, yeah. <laughs> dear, oh dear. Yeah, <laughs> It'd be much, I'd be much happier Graham, if you could. All right, but mummies and daddies love each other very, very much. Mm. Well, that's a shame. Uh, this is humiliating uh, for Mary, and it also it prompts Philip's return to the continent. Oh, dear. Now, he'd actually stayed longer than he'd originally intended to anyway, but his father is now keen to complete the handover of power. And with no child um, and still no coronation forthcoming, Philip doesn't really have any desire to stay any longer in England. Mm. He's done his bit, oh, done his job. Really depressing. Time to go home. Yeah, but... Oh, I see. Oh, I see, yeah, from... Uh... From from that incredibly selfish point of view, yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah. yeah. He's he's just being Spain, isn't he? Yeah. He's just being Spain. Um obviously he knows that Mary is not going to be happy about this. Um so he asks mm. one of his advisors, Let me know what line I am to take with the Queen about about leaving her and about religion. I see I must say something, but God help me. Yeah. You uh, He does he he does give up his responsibilities. Well, he gives Long up some responsibilities matters. for other responsibilities. Mm. In the end, he just assures Mary that he's he's only going to be gone for a few weeks. Oh, just oh, that's fine. Just lie. Yeah, just lie. That's oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mary rides with Philip from Hampton Court to Greenwich in a grand procession. At which point he departs uh, by river. Uh, Mary apparently watched him go all the way from a window of the palace until the boat was finally out of sight. Philip uh, waved his hat towards her, demonstrating great affection. 
But I imagine then popped open the champagne and went turned around to his awful friend and said, Were you lads on tour? Yes, and uh, he then goes to Brussels yeah. and has lots of lovely dancing with young ladies and all that sort of business. Yeah. Right. Okay. I feel a lot more sorry for Mary now, I think, than I did in the um episode. episode and especially since seeing Mary Bloody Mary live. Mm. Well, yeah, so she is devastated. She's weeping at the window. She writes to him, you know, sort of on a daily basis. Um, now, initially, Philip does keep in quite close contact with England, so he sets up a body of advisers who write to him three times a week from London with all the stuff that's going on so that he can give his advice and direction. He effectively selects a new Archbishop of York and a new Lord Chancellor from Brussels. But is that Mary? I think that's Mary. Is that because Mary's incapable and um, still very, very poorly? Or her now allowing him to exert some authority to sort of, because she misses him, tempt him back? Um, she's not. Um, she's not poorly at this stage. I think that she. I think she would have just seen that they would have ruled together. I think that would have been her idea. So they still mm. want his um, his input on stuff. So you know he's respected as an important voice. So there's a sense that well, this is a big decision. We should probably ask Philip. Hmm. Philip did get Mary to start attending council meetings again, not so much because he thinks, oh, you, you're really good at this, you should do it more in a sort of, this will keep you busy. Yeah, I'm cynically thinking of all of these decisions in that yeah. frame. <clears throat> uh, however, his responses become increasingly infrequent as his other responsibilities grow. So from October 1555, he is Lord of the Netherlands, which are often a sort of state of rebellion uh, against uh, against Spain. And then January 1556, he actually becomes king of Spain with his father retiring to a monastery. Retiring? Yeah. So he's not dead right. at this point, so he yeah. goes off to a monastery. Uh, but so Philip does now have quite a lot of work to do that isn't just being consort of England. So from his perspective, mm. the other stuff's more yeah. important. Obviously, Mary is writing to him frequently, urging him to return. He says he's basically not willing to do so unless he'll be granted a coronation and a more official role in government. Mm. Uh, and this is just because he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to, and I guess particularly now that he is actually king of Spain and all these other powers, he thinks, well, why do I want to come to this country where you've got all these very specific legal limits on how unpowerful I have to be? Yeah, and I because, Philip, darling, you're talking about power and I'm talking about our marriage. <laughs> <laughs> Don't understand. <laughs> From his perspective, he thinks, yeah, if, if you're going to give me a coronation and I'm going to be a proper king, then yes, I'll come and be a proper king. But otherwise... That is the price of my love. <laughs> well, yes, exactly. However, he is forced to change his tune in 1557 when France and Spain go uh, back to war after a couple of years of peace. And Mary says it will be impossible to secure English support without his presence. She's not without a little bit of a yeah. cynical play as well. So to her delight, Philip returns. Right. Only for a few months, obviously, but long enough to get the support that he requires. Uh, but now he's going back for war. So uh, initially, actually, it goes quite well. But unfortunately, in January 1558, England's last continental possession, Calais, falls in a surprise French attack. Mary allegedly claimed, when I am dead and opened, you shall find Calais lying on my heart. The only solace is that she declared herself to be pregnant once again. Yeah. Uh, which Philip is pleased to hear about, but he does decide to dispatch the Count of Ferrier to verify this, and then the Count concludes that Mary was making herself believe that she is with child, although she does not own up to it. Oh, no. Now, in oh, this no. case, it probably wasn't uh, another phantom pregnancy. In this occasion, Mary actually is very seriously ill, probably with cancer, and she dies on the 17th of November, 1558, at the age of 42. And how old's Phil at this point? Uh, he's 31. Okay. Now, Can't help but think that he's just... He's riding his luck the whole way and can't believe it. And he's not perhaps overwhelmed with grief from the evidence, so he wrote to his sister, I felt a reasonable regret for her death. Uh, yeah. Is this officially recorded? Good. Now, where were we? Now, in fairness to him, he does does have a lot on in the grief stakes. His aunt... Uh, his actual aunt, the, who had been the governor of the Netherlands for 24 years, had died just a month earlier. And his father, uh, in retirement, had died two months earlier. So in a couple right. of months, he's lost his father, his aunt, and his wife. 
Yeah. So as he also writes to his sister, you may imagine what a state I am in. It seems to me that everything is being taken from me at once. Yeah, that's horrible. Mm. Poor Pope. Now, with Mary's death, of course, Philip ceases to be King of England. Now, as I yeah. said, we're going to focus our review on his time as consort, but we will continue his life story from uh, an English perspective. Mary was succeeded by her Protestant sister, Elizabeth I, which Philip actively supports. Which will seem rather illogical, both for the religious aspect yeah. and obviously the knowledge of what will ultimately come. Yeah, um, Philip is pragmatic but, when he needs to be, and the person with the best claim to the English throne after Elizabeth is Mary, Queen of Scots, who is a Catholic but married to the French Dauphin. So as far as Philip is concerned, better an English Protestant than a French Catholic. Yeah, better to keep the, um, better to keep the island off the continent a question mark than red, white and blue of France. Mm. Now, obviously, Philip hopes that by supporting Elizabeth, that will give him some continued influence. Um, but he's surprised when Elizabeth intimates that she might be interested in receiving a proposal of marriage from Philip. This is... Are you sure? Now, some have speculated that Philip had been attracted to Elizabeth when, in England, this was part of the reason why he'd always sort of protected her <laughs> under Mary, but he didn't relish the uh, prospect of uh, a heretic bride, so he wrote to Ferrier that he felt himself a condemned man awaiting his fate. If it was not to serve God, believe me, I should not have got into this. Nothing would make me do this except the clear knowledge that it would gain the kingdom for his service and faith. Because there are pragmatic benefits uh, to Philip marrying Elizabeth, um, but he has conditions, including that Elizabeth convert to Catholicism and petition the Pope for absolution. Okay, so it, it, they're fully out of the club again now. Well, she's not quite... She hasn't yet got her religious settlement in place, but it is believed that she's Protestant. But Philip says, look, if we're going to do this, you're going to be Catholic and you're going to ask the Pope to forgive you for all that Protestant stuff that you've been doing. Right. That is the price of my love. <laughs> Turns out, though, that his demands are completely unnecessary because Elizabeth doesn't actually have any intention of marrying him whatsoever. So what? It's just keeping these negotiations and chats open. It's useful for to keep him really sort of interested so that the French know what's going on, so that the mm. Catholics in England know what's going on, keeping all of these plates spinning. She never actually really wants to marry him. And Philip's probably quite okay. relieved, and he quickly finds a new bride for himself. Um, but he does continue for many years to protect Elizabeth from papal sanction, because he still wants to maintain that balance of power in Europe. Because if Elizabeth falls because of Catholic intervention, probably that means Mary Queen of Scots will take over, and thus France will have England yeah. and Scotland. The whole island will be French, basically. What does he have a role? Is he king? Con is he? But what's an equivalent role if he were female? None. Because he isn't the mother of the, he wouldn't be. He's not the father of the. No, he's not king, the father of the of the new monarch. He didn't have a child. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know if he's ever referred to as the Dowager King. Dowager, that's the one. Yeah, I bet he'd find that deeply offensive, wouldn't he? Yes, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> However, tensions do grow between Philip and Elizabeth. A key turning point is when Mary, Queen of Scots, takes exile. Uh, in England after she's forced to flee from Scotland. She's no longer quite as well connected to France, so the presence of an alternative Catholic monarch in England rather changes things, and Philip does now start to support various attempts to put her on the throne in place of Elizabeth. So it's starting to get serious now. Mm. Uh, after Elizabeth is finally excommunicated in 1570 and is, feels more under threat now, she starts to give more active support to Protestant rebels uh, in the Netherlands and also encourages attacks on Spanish ships and ports by privateers like Francis Drake. Oh, yeah. And the final straw is the execution of Mary, uh, Queen of Scots, in 1587, so that removes any prospect of a Catholic succession. So in 1588, Philip launched the Spanish Armada with nearly 150 ships heading to link up with an army of over 50,000 soldiers to invade England, overthrow Elizabeth and restore Catholicism. Oh, in the Netherlands. They were going to link up in yeah. the Netherlands, weren't mm. they? However, the Armada is a disaster. The arrangements are too complex. Its leaders don't have autonomy and the fleet is devastated by storms. Now, we're focusing very much on the English part of Philip's story. It is worth remembering, though, that there was a lot going on for him that wasn't England. He remarries twice after Mary, 
Uh, and despite the Armada, Philip remains by far the most powerful ruler in Europe, if not the world. You know, he's king of Spain, king of Portugal from 1580, king of Naples and Sicily, duke of Milan, and lord of the Netherlands. Uh, it rules a vast empire that includes dominance of many of the Italian states, much of the Americas, uh, and the Philippines, which are named after him. Rex fact. Mm. Really? Yep, Philippines named after Philip II. Um, however, by 1598, Philip's health is in decline. Uh, suffering from cancer, he ends up bedridden, enduring his suffering uh, with great forbearance. So he continued to conduct state business until the very end, uh, despite the fact he had to have a hole cut into his bed to allow the release of bodily fluids. Not totally dignified for him. <laughs> Indeed, and he dies on the 13th of September, 1598, at El Escorial, his uh, magnificent Castilian palace, at the age of 71. Oh, that's not bad. It's not bad. So that's the life and consulship of Philip II. We will review him after a quick break. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Battleliness. So a quick reminder, again, that we are just reviewing Philip II as consort of England and not the entirety of, of his reign. So that's particularly pertinent for battleliness because Philip fights various wars against France, the Netherlands, he's got his global empire, various conquests. We're not troubling ourselves with any of that uh, unless it relates to his time as consort. We're not even going to be considering the Spanish Armada. Okay, that li- that's... That said, we do have some traditional battliness for Philip because in 1557, Philip returned to England to persuade the Privy Council that England should join Spain in the war against France and he leads an English force at uh, San Quentin. Now, unfortunately, the English took so long to arrive that they missed the actual battle that took place. But Philip was determined to wait for them so that he could lead the English army, and they did play an important role in the capture of the town. Uh, Philip was at the head of his troops, leading an English force to victory. He reported afterwards uh, that we entered St. Quentin on all sides, killing all those whom we could find during the fury of the first assault. While an eyewitness recorded, His Majesty was on horseback, holding his commander's baton in his hand. So, you know, we've got Philip leading an English army, capturing a French town. You've got him on horseback. I mean, I guess it's latter half of the 16th century, so he's got a baton rather than a sword held aloft. But nevertheless, he's he's looking the part here. Yeah, it's annoyingly unde- undeniable. I don't know <laughs> yes. I've taken against him, but yeah. <laughs> now, unfortunately for Philip's reputation here, St. Quentin is undermined by the loss a few months later of Calais. Oh, yeah. which is seen as much more significant by English uh, English eyes. And many uh, blame Philip. You know, this is his war, so the loss is very much associated with him. Mm. Now, yeah. in his defence, Philip had warned Mary, the Privy Council and the commander of Calais, that he had intelligence that an attack was going to be coming, and indeed he offered to provide reinforcements and Spanish ships, if required, uh, but these were turned down. And then once Calais had fallen, Philip offers to personally lead campaign to take it back, only to receive from the Privy Council various excuses about the difficulty of raising troops, the danger of French presence in Scotland, and an all-round lack of money. Mm. He's, he's up for it, isn't he? So actually, really, to be fair to Philip, he's doing everything he can, and you could almost see he's going a little, almost above and beyond. You know, it's not his... Yeah. Ter- it's sort of his territory, his king consul, but, you know, it's, it's more England's concern, but he tries, he wants to, but it's just the English sort of prevaricate and don't quite have the spirit and the money to do it. And at the subsequent peace conference a few years later, the French, because um, Philip takes a French uh, bride, so the French asked for Calais as dowry for Philip's new bride. So the idea is then basically that will go to Philip, and then Philip says, OK, so I'll take Calais, and then promises the English, I can then give it to you afterwards, so you can get it back. Uh, but the English reject the offer because they thought it would question their sovereignty over Calais if the French could give it to Philip and then their reliance on him gifting it back. They said, oh, hang on, that suggests that we're not in charge of Calais, which we definitely are, so we won't do that, thank you very much. Yeah. We'll, stay in, we'll, <laughs> we'll stay not in charge of Calais. <laughs> but if we're, the way we judge um, female 
uh, consorts at this period is fighting, usually fighting against the rules that are holding them back rather than an actual battle. Mm. And this guy wants an actual battle, but is letting the rules hold him back. But I reckon if you'd have given uh, tell, me a, tell me a decent uh, consort, fighty one. Eleanor Aquitaine, Isabella. Give her what um, Philip had. They wouldn't have just asked permission to take Calais back. <laughs> it's mm. tricky, isn't it? Because he's sort of, I guess he's in a way honouring the limitations, saying, well, it's your, it's your town. If you don't want it, fine. I'm offering to help. Yeah, I guess actually he doesn't care that much, does he? However, point you were making, though, I'm not sure it's so fair to criticise his agency when it comes to not just um, arbitrarily leading a Spanish army to capture Calais. But it does have my ring to it, doesn't it? That's... <laughs> <laughs> well, but when we're talking about agency and independence of action, which is what we're usually talking about uh, mm. in Battle of the Consorts, um, we do have plenty of evidence of Philip exhibiting those qualities. He does emerge as the dominant power in England, despite all of the legal limitations on his power. Mm. So he sort of oh, takes true. over yeah. regardless. So he does assert himself in that sense. Mm. And I can't shake the feeling that she is trying to play happy families by tempting him with power. Mm. Like it's a very one-sided relationship, isn't it? Yeah. But I think I, I'm just um, seeing it as far too personal than it is uh, diplomatic. Mm. And yet, you know, if we do focus just on the, the high politics stuff and agency, he never succeeds in getting that coronation. Yeah. And he specifically it, asked for it. Yeah, because he quickly realised that not having one will always limit his power and status, because perhaps he and Charles have both thought, look, OK, we'll sign up to this treaty, but on the ground, once he's there, obviously, he'll just take over anyway. Yeah. But he yeah. realises, until I have this coronation, there is always going to be this glass ceiling. Yeah. And, as I said, you know, Mary, when Mary tried to persuade him to return to England, he effectively set having a coronation as his price, so his envoy, Badoa, mm. stated... The King of England had informed his wife that he was most anxious to gratify her wish for his return, but that he could not do so without being given an honourable share in the government of the realm. Now, we know, obviously, Mary was desperate for Philip to return. She missed him. She was weeping at his absence, etc. But she also recognised that there was no support for him getting a coronation. And indeed, the mere rumour of it led to, you know, sort of stirrings of rebellion. So for all that, you know, he's got the upper hand, etc. over Mary, she nevertheless doesn't give him that yeah i think that's because it's like it's the ultimate weapon isn't it it's the only real tool in the arsenal that uh she can always hold that back but once she's spent that <laughs> but still you know i guess in terms of philip's agency and independence of action he fails to get that coronation yeah, he fails yeah, to yeah. take that extra step that he wanted to so he is always kept just about kept in his place legally uh, yeah but i hadn't really thought until a moment ago that how much he actually didn't care <laughs> like, you know, if he really wanted to, maybe he just would have done. But there's yeah. so much other stuff going on. I'm not going to count the Calais thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to count the coronation. Yeah, but not very highly because I think I think the, he went through the motions. He didn't want to be there. He said, "Look, if I'm going to war, I'm going to do it properly." Bang, bang, bang. Yeah, that's how you do it. Do you want any more? No. Okay. Right. Whatever. <laughs> I'm off. He did it. He did. We did what he had to do. Um pretty effectively five it's just not terribly exciting i'll give him a six i'll give him i'm going to put him into the positive because i think because of actually if we think of him in that traditional sense the amount of power and authority he is able to exert from being technically consort i think is impressive so again we sort of would sort of think well obviously he should be because he's he's a king of course he should be in charge but you know Falling he's certainly the consort, and but he, you know, he fights through that legal limitation to just basically take control anyway. In many ways, not in all ways, but otherwise, it's it's not an awful lot of stuff going on. Otherwise, so yeah, I'm, I'm going to be positive. Give him a six. Nice. So a six and a five, eleven for Battleiness. He would hate that, wouldn't he? <laughs> Scandal. Now again, perhaps because I'm restricting myself just to English stuff, I've not really found an awful lot to go on. Now, you might assume everything's just very austere and Catholic with Philip, nothing untoward going on, Uh, but that's not necessarily the case. Apparently he owned a collection of tastefully pornographic paintings by Titian. (laughs) It's art, Mum! (laughs) 
And he had a bit of a reputation for being uh, lascivious. Oh, dear. So Magdalene Dacre later recalled her youth at court uh, at this time when Philip apparently had opened a window where she happened to be washing and reached his arm inside to have a bit of a poke and a prod. Check that it was all getting washed properly. and well, Mindful of her modesty, she grabbed a nearby stick and struck his arm, to which Philip apparently took no offence, but actually held her in even greater esteem for doing so. I thought you meant like she was washing. as in Oh no, she was having a sh- like, like having a shower, sort of washing. Having a shower? Yeah. Oh. He's a rotter, isn't he? Mary yeah. will most likely have heard reports of Philip feasting and dancing with abandon as soon as he got back to Brussels, um, partic- yeah. taking particular fancy to certain young ladies. Yeah, that was that's always, yeah. I mean, I, scandal-wise, though, um, going off to Brussels is just that sort. There's not much, though, is there? No. I was going to say, th- I can't even see it much more than a two. No. No, it's not really. Yeah, I and mean, I guess if you did a, if you did one for each, the the paintings, the the washing, and oh, the, the paintings, yeah, and the ladies of Brussels. I'll give him a three. All right, you're staying two. I'll stay two. Two for you. And that's five for scandal. Subjectivity. Well, there's more to talk about here. Uh, Philip is the first male consort in English history. Mm. which is obviously a very notable thing in itself, and it's a difficult job because he wants to assert his power, everyone else wants to limit it. Mm. So he's got to find a role for himself. Um, it's a new thing in England. It's it's untested waters, really. Uh, he quickly secures much of the symbolism of power, so coins issued in September 1554 show Mary and Philip in profile, Philip now on the dominant right, and they're underneath the shared crown, sort of floating above uh, above their heads. His name also appears first on charters and proclamations. Really? Hmm. Is that probably a loophole that wasn't included in that early treaty before they got married and so he's exploiting it all yeah. over the place? Uh, he has an aptitude for government and Mary's keen to let him do so. So two days after the wedding, she decreed that council matters should be translated into Latin and Spanish so that he can hmm. be fully abreast of what's going on. Uh, he attends meetings at the council twice a week uh, and his judgment is clearly respected. As I said, he was still directing policy and appointments even when he went off to Brussels. Yeah. He also manages to carve out a male role for himself at court, so areas that Mary isn't able to fulfil, Philip is able to step in. So no tournaments have been held under Mary uh, before Philip's arrival, but he held eight from 1554 to 1557. So he finds a traditional way of demonstrating his martial prowess and also to form bonds with the English noblemen. Yeah, Henry VIII-style stuff. Hmm. Uh, and he's demonstrably successful in this regard. So he is godfather to three sons of nobles in this time who are named in his honour. So that includes the only son of the fourth Duke of Norfolk, so Philip Howard, uh, and also the famous poet and soldier Philip Sidney. It's named after Philip II. Now, many of the men who fight uh, alongside him in France at St. Quentin had previously been supporters of Lady Jane Grey and Wyatt's Rebellion. Oh, Right. Oh, that's pretty impressive. Uh, the most notable of those who is now on side and fighting alongside him in France is none other than Robert Dudley. Really? Mm. Oh, wow. Philip's not just interested in symbolism and affinity, though, he, and he does have a mission as King of England, a little bit similar to Catherine Parr, in a way, except the exact opposite. The <laughs> first and most important subject which I wanted to achieve was to win approval on religious matters. Mary had already repealed the Protestant legislation of Edward VI, but restoring the English church to Rome is left largely to Philip. And the main issue was that the Pope was determined that all the church lands that were taken during the dissolution of the monasteries should be returned to the church. Yeah, but obviously never going to happen now. Yes, all the people who own the land don't want to give them back. Yeah. So Philip meets with uh, the nobles and wins their support by making a personal guarantee that those in possession will remain so. Well, how does that work? He manages to persuade Pope Paul III to send a legate to England to help uh, a compromise. So that's a papal representative, a cardinal. Uh, so he selects Reginald Pole, who is a Plantagenet that Henry VIII had been trying to kill for many years. Now, unfortunately, Cardinal, as you know, is Cardinal Pole is also a stickler for returning the lands, and he actually wants legal hearings for each and every one, which will be an incredibly time-consuming and expensive and obviously unpopular process. Mm. So... Because Philip's got, obviously, all his, you know, 
imperial length. They basically just detain Pole in Brussels and don't let him leave until he mm-hmm. and the Pope are convinced that there is no prospect of reconciliation unless they surrender these claims to church lands. So there's Philip doing that. He wants them to give up on the idea. Yeah, because he wants the reconciliation. He wants England back as fully Catholic and in Church of Rome. He's like, look, just drop this whole church land thing. Yeah. Just oh, the bigger okay. picture, England's coming back. Let it happen. Yeah. Whatever we have to do to make that happen, you should make that happen. So sure enough, Reginald Pole is then allowed to return to Catholicism and we have this formal ceremony and process whereby England is Catholic again and England is back under Rome. Right, it's exhausting, isn't it? Mm, so all of the stuff of Edward VI, the Reformation and everything that Henry VIII does has been undone. But I bet if you're distributing that memo, uh, you'd have a quiet word saying, don't throw it away, just put it in the store. <laughs> yeah. I've got a funny feeling this is going to be needed again. Well, the thing is, obviously, in hindsight, we know that it doesn't last very long because of Elizabeth, but it had been successful. So Protestants in 1558 expressed grudging amazement at the change, lamenting, you would scarcely believe that so much desolation could have been effected in so short a time. So, you know, all of the bishops, all of the major sort of religious leaders, etc., they're all Catholic again. It's, it has it has happened. Mm. So if Mary had lived for another decade, you know, she's only 42 when she dies, and Henry, with all his horrific stuff, lived to 55. 55. So another decade mm. of Mary on the throne. Catholicism may well have been so firmly embedded that Elizabeth couldn't have just swept it away as soon as she became queen. Yeah, you need a, it needs a generation, doesn't it, to bed in or be forgotten mm. so really philip and mary had done the job and it's just that mary dying obviously meant D- not even mary dying mary dying without a yeah she'd had a child son. that phantom pregnancy had been yeah. an heir well hmm. and yet elizabeth provides us with another positive for philip because it's in no small part thanks to philip that elizabeth survives mary's reign which ultimately of course ensured a peaceful succession because many of Mary's closest advisers were urging her to execute Elizabeth when she was pretty closely associated with a plot against Mary in 1556. Oh, yeah. But mm. they decided this is such a big matter that, as with all things, they've got to see what Philip thinks about it in Brussels, and he unequivocally tells them to drop all charges and indeed all mention of any suggestion of impropriety. Really? Don't touch her, basically, is what he says. And then when Mary dies, he very publicly throws his support behind Elizabeth's accession to the throne... Um, and Elizabeth was forced to concede to Count Ferrier that she would always be grateful to Philip, as when she was in prison, he had shown her favour and helped to obtain her release. Though she would not accept that he played a role in actually putting her on the throne. Yeah. But, well, um, well okay. Yeah, still, his acquiescence I mean, at least helps ensure that she doesn't face active challenge. Continued protection from afar helped stop the Pope doing anything against her so english catholics don't really have any leadership or direction for that time so obviously it's all for selfish and pragmatic reasons on Philip's exactly, part. Yeah. but nevertheless he did help ensure the stability both of the succession and really the first decade for elizabeth as queen without mm. philip's support could have been a lot harder well yeah i mean if if that is it was so fragile and relying on your sort of what do I mean? Your spiritual enemy yeah. for your support is pretty shaky. Hmm. 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 Well done. Yeah. Now, the most infamous elements of Mary's reign, of course, are the burnings, the Protestant martyrs. Something like yeah. three hundred burnt at the stake. Uh, the Spanish Dominican Carranza, who's at the court, had worked for the Inquisition. And, and he gave practical advice to Bishop Bonner of London, who was a notoriously profligate burner of heretics. On uh, Oh, gosh, how grim, swapping tips. Mm. And he was also active in seeking the death of Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Ugh. But question is, to what extent is Philip culpable yeah. in the burnings? Now, other prominent Spaniards at court voiced opposition. But Philip's confessor preached a sermon at court, presumably with Philip's uh, knowledge, attacking the policy, whilst one of his closest advisers, Reynard, warned that such cruel enforcement could cause a revolt. Yeah, so it's not the case that Spain come over and is like, look, you've got all these Protestants, you really need to burn them. Yeah, there's, um, don't you burn, where at home we burn these? <laughs> you can get rid of them like that, you know. <laughs> uh, as far as Philip's concerned, 
it's a defence that is passive, really, at best. So he's obviously was content to let people be burnt. He doesn't okay. do anything to stop it. You feel like if Philip has said this is a bad idea, it wouldn't have happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And apparently he did later boast that many heretics had been burnt and many others converted during his reign. So okay. he obviously lets it continue. Yeah, it is passive, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. So he's not directly responsible, but equally he doesn't yeah. really do anything to stop it. I think, I mean, yeah, that's again, that, that if we were to use that whole battliness thing of agency, he, he's always got that excuse of being able to lean back on saying, well, I haven't got any power. If you give me a coronation, I'll take all the blame you like. <laughs> now, an undeniable negative that can be levelled against Philip is that he's absent for much of his time as consort. Mm. So he marries Mary in July 1554, but left for Brussels at the end of August 1555, so it's just over a year that he's actually in England originally, and he doesn't return until 1557, and even then it's only for a few months and just to get support for a war. Because he's, he's had one totally grim sort of winter, and <laughs> said that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Forget it. Yeah. Um, so he made you know, a very strong start in England, but essentially then abandons those responsibilities once something better comes along. So as I mm. said, his responses to English business grow less frequent from 1556, has a bit of a huff that they won't give him a coronation. Doesn't seem to think it's worth his while. And it does, you know, does devastate Mary. Uh, one onlooker wrote to Philip, The Queen's face has lost flesh greatly since I was last with her. The extreme need she has of the consort's presence harassing her, she having also within the last few days lost her sleep. Yeah. Now, yes, uh, he is busy being king of a much larger kingdom and a global empire, and he's got wars to fight on many fronts, but... Maybe the sceptics in 1554 were right. England would only ever have been an accessory for Spain, would have been yeah. subsumed by the marriage if they hadn't put all those restrictions on him. Yes, I think that's true. Uh, it doesn't even return when it's clear that Mary's dying. Oh, it's not good, is it? He's not bringing anything. To, uh, he's holding his chips back for that power. Hmm. It might have been better. Now, obviously, it's tragic for her. It's also a bit of a missed opportunity for him because if he'd been on hand to actually oversee the succession he really could have effectively been seen to put elizabeth on the throne and thus much more strongly in his debt yeah be the um power that sits behind the throne mm. it doesn't the outcome is not good subjectivity score but you know he 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 does pre achieve quite a lot you know in just that one year that he's in england he changes the religion now, obviously, that's what Mary is doing, and that's yeah. part of her whole thing. It's not that he just comes along and does it, but you know, he's he gets the Pope to stand down, and Cardinal Pole. He negotiates that. It's a pretty tough thing to do, and he's there with the Lords in England as well. So, you know, that's that's a pretty major achievement, to be fair to. Andrew said, you know, about how he managed to get, you know, some loyalty from the nobles. You got Robert Dudley and his ilk fighting alongside Philip. St. Quentin, he does manage to find a role for himself. He's the first. So he's he's not, not achieved anything. And selfish as it was, you know, he does help Elizabeth early on. So pretty good, actually, isn't it? Mm. Oh, you've, you've, you've done me. Mm. I think it's like he clearly does have an actual talent for governance. That's his thing, yeah. isn't it? Is effective, uh, no-nonsense... Good leadership. What we really want. <laughs> Five. Straight down the middle of Philip. It's tricky because, I mean, the problem is we're obviously about to get to longevity. The problem is that he isn't there for very long. Mm. Obviously, he's physically not there for very long. But also, obviously, Mary dying means that he doesn't yeah. get very long in the job, which is beyond mm. his control. I, th I think I'm going to go higher for subjectivity. I think that actually he does a surprisingly good job as King of England. Mm. I think the burnings aren't really on him, even though it's bad, but I think that's more on Mary and some of her other advisers. I think his absence is understandable. It doesn't actually cause any real problems for England, I don't think. So I'm actually gonna I'm gonna give him a seven actually for subjectivity. I'm being Mr Negative today, aren't I? Hmm. So I'm going seven, you're going five. Five, yeah. Twelve for subjectivity. Longevity. So, Philip is King Consort of England from the 25th of July 1554 to the 17th of November 1558, which is 4.33 years, which gives him a score mm. of 5, which is the 43rd best overall. 
Well, he's never going to do well there, is he? Interesting, though, that's better than five of Henry VIII's six wives. <laughs> yeah. Then five of them? Yeah, Catherine of Aragon, obviously, is much longer, but is, yeah. all the others are queen consort for less amount of time than Philip is king consort. That's a really, really nice Rex fact. So he is the longest-serving consort since Catherine of Aragon, which seems appropriate, given that she's his whatever. Oh, yeah. However many times removed. Dynasty, not the programme. Tragically, obviously, Philip had no children by Mary. He does have children, but uh, he doesn't get credit for that here. So he gets a score of zero, which is joint 42nd overall. And indeed, overall, he has a total score of 33. And that puts him currently in 27th place. Just ahead of Jane Seymour. But... It's not all about the score. Does he have that certain something, the lasting legacy, the great achievement, the star quality that we call... Rex Factor! This is tough. Well, he has a very good first year, all that stuff I was talking about, you know, restoring Catholicism, uh, getting the Pope to make a compromise, getting the loyalty of the nobles, helping out Elizabeth a bit. He's the first king consort of England. And he's very famous. And if you were Catholic, he would just be the absolute boss. But, obviously, a lot of that we're bringing the knowledge of the wider Philip II of Spain and stuff that will come later. But actually, is he Rexy in this short period of time in England? Oh, I see, yeah. Rather than his appearance coming in like a rock star and say that is someone who has (laughs) the Rex factor, he would be almost certainly a Spanish Rex factor winner. But I see. Okay, is he a consort? Yeah, does he deserve it as consort of England? Do you know what takes the edge off the Rex factorness? Mm. Is that he just doesn't care enough. If he did, <laughs> he would be he would just be he would use all of the influence and power that he had to greater aplomb and effect and be like zip zap zop look aren't I a rock star? But as it is, he's busy being a rock star elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So it just sort of turns up and goes has oh. recently just had the uh, Glastonbury Festival uh, mm. in England. Nineteen years ago. I went, 2004, 2004. and Oasis was one of the headliners, and they'd had like a massive row and were not in the mood. (laughs) But if you're just judging this Glastonbury Festival, that's not a great performance. It's a crap gig. Yeah. Great artist, crap gig. Mm. So I think Philip's friends, I wouldn't say it was a bad gig, I think he actually does a very impressive job in that first year, but I'm not sure that it's enough. I'm not sure he gets enough of a crack of a whip. And the fact that he does then decide to go and do bigger and better things as he sees it, I think he would have then needed a bit yeah. more. And in your wonderful Glastonbury analogy, he's not... Uh, Oasis aren't headlining the uh, pyramid stage. <laughs> They're sort of doing a favour on this weird place in the woods. And everyone's like, oh, that wasn't quite as good a gig as I thought it would be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I like the songs, but it, it was quite a short set. It yeah. didn't really seem like you were up for it. Have you got a sore throat or something? No, no, I just haven't... I've not got permission to uh, properly sing. Yeah. God, this is getting tortured, this is early, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> now I've got Liam Gallagher with a doctor's note. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, even though Philip II is this major figure who, in another series, may well be worthy of the Rex Factor, I don't think, as King Consort, he does enough to warrant it. Yeah. So that's a no for Philip II and Oasis. Hey, why are you giving me a no, man? Hey. <laughs> it's weird where you go with this Rex Factor Live, isn't it? Correspondence Corner. Uh, let us know what you thought about Philip II of Spain. Do you think he deserved the Rex Factor for his time in England? Which Oasis album do you think best represents Philip II? <laughs> Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Rex Factor Pod. Like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page. Email rexfactorpodcast at hotmail.com and remember to send in a hot, uh, hashtag consult card for an episode image of Philip II. Presumably. Uh, I know exactly what it's going to be. In a parker. If you'd like to support the podcast, be sure to subscribe on whatever podcast provider you use. Donate monthly to join the Privy Council and get o- access to over 200 bonus episodes. Patreon.com mm. forward slash rexfactor. And we've got some new Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold. Lillian Toomey. Twin Cat Games, Carrie Beasley, Catherine Vagel, Lena Williams, Kelly, Taylor Davis, 
Joshua Proston, Shoshana Stern, Krista Worth, Simon Pulsifer, Susan Bisbee, James, Kylie Benzeman, Abby Sturgeon, Ariadne Penalva, Mary H, Vicky Scott, Nate Garver, Nicole Brace, Joseph Jordan, Dennis O'Donovan, Bill Kirkpatrick, Linda Moyer, and Brendan O'Donnell. Oh, brilliant. So that's all from us today. Now, technically, Elizabeth I obviously didn't have a consort, so we could just skip over her completely. But we thought it'd be interesting to learn more about the men who could have been consort, which obviously includes Philip and Dudley. So next time, we will be speaking to the historian Professor Susan Doran, who literally wrote the book on Elizabeth's suitors. Wicked. See you then. Cheerio! Cheerio!